Hello and welcome to Crafting the Crypto Economy. I am Silvia Sanchez, Project Manager at Owl Explains by Ava Labs, and today we bring you a transformative podcast series in partnership with the Crypto and Blockchain Economic Research Forum. This series features leading faculty from renowned global universities exploring various elements in the blockchain ecosystem. These episodes are a bit longer than our usual hootenannies since we will be getting very deep. And also, each episode will have its accompanying paper posted on our website for further reading. And with that, I will hand it over to our moderators, Fahad Saleh and Andreas Park. Hey everyone, and welcome back to another edition of the Crafting the Crypto Economy podcast series organized by the Crypto Economics and Blockchain Research Forum, CBER and uh, OWL. We're here to discuss recent research papers and trying to get you to understand better what people are working on, what kind of open questions there are in terms of crypto economics in the blockchain space. And we have two great speakers here with us today who will talk about us uh, with about their work on DAO voting. Now, um, maybe we start, should start to introduce these speakers first. So, uh, Jerry, um, how about you start with yourself? Yeah, thanks, uh, Andreas. It's good to uh, to be here. Appreciate the invitation. So uh, I'm Jerry Tukalis. I'm an associate professor in the information systems group in the business school at Boston uh, University, and I work mainly on digital platforms and blockchain being one of the things that I'm working on. Excellent. And Brett, how about you? Yeah, hi, I'm Brett Falk, and I'm a research assistant professor in the computer science department at Penn. So as you can see, this time around, we don't have actually economists in the room. We have people who have a very big background in operation system, computer science, and so on. Uh, the advantage, hopefully, will be that in contrast to us economists, you have a better understanding about many of the nuances of how DAOs are organized. Um, but maybe we should start by taking a, a very high road and big picture overview, um, because uh, you know it's it's probably... A very well, very important to understand first what a DAO is, so a decentralized autonomous organization. I'm not sure who wants to take that question, but uh, Jerry, maybe you can just give us a big picture overview of of, of what this is all about. Yeah, sure. Um, so uh, I guess in my in my view, a decentralized autonomous organization or a DAO is um, is is basically a platform um, like you find in you know the the economy like. Take some examples, Amazon, Uber, et cetera. But uh, there's no one really running the show. Um, I mean, there's no central hierarchy running the show. It's organized as a decentralized structure where all the participants, and by that I mean both users, the people who are providing service and the people who are buying service, are uh, coming together and somehow deciding in a decentralized fashion uh, how to govern and, and, uh, and operate on this platform. Um, and the central entity, that usually makes decisions. Um, for instance, in the case of Uber, you know, sets prices and, and who matches uh, people who are looking for rides, et cetera, is replaced by things like a smart contract um, that automates, uh, you know, these these types of economic decisions. Um, and I'll just say one one more quick thing. Uh, you know, this is w w economists have looked at decentralized systems for a long, long time, um, but the the fact that blockchain technology um, really enabled that. You know, much more than before, I think, has really launched a new research area from all different sides, including the business schools, computer scientists, uh, sometimes some mathematicians and all over the place, really looking at this, this really interesting new area. And, um, you know, in my view, there are, there are, I'll just say, four major obstacles um, that one needs to consider when creating these systems. Uh, one of them is how do you collect information from from different people on the system, right? So you don't have a central decision maker. So how do you actually collect information from everyone? On the platform? And that's what primarily the papers that I'm assuming we're going to talk about today. But there are other uh, things like how you record the information. So that has to do with consensus mechanisms and other things like that. Um, the third thing is how do you coordinate user behavior? So outside of the information aspect, how do you get people to act in a way that not just in their self-interest, but also helps the platform as a whole. Uh, and maybe a fourth thing I would throw in is uh, how do you how do you raise capital for these types of platforms? And there's, there's new ways to do that. So that would be, in a nutshell, uh, my definition of what uh, what I think a DAO is. Wow, that's a that's a pretty broad definition. Um, I see Brad wants to jump in, but let me just quickly say, just for the audience's sake, maybe just a very brief 
you know, summary here is so really what you're looking at is there's an attempt to organize if you want a firm without an address, which is, you know, what blockchain really is. And it's a firm without managers, right? It's a fully democratic, organized entity. And uh, that's, you know, that sounds actually something which can be very difficult to to get off the ground, right? We know in a democracy, it's actually hard to to get people to vote, to do anything. Um, and then, you know, I, I presume, as you say, so I think one of the one of the clever things about a DAO is, okay, so maybe people have their input, but then there is a particular contract feature. So that means a, an algorithm which then implements the choice that people have. Um, now, maybe it's useful for, for, the, for the audience to first actually take one or two examples. So, um, for instance, if I, if I may suggest one, um, one, of the, one of the major applications that we also discuss here in this podcast are uh, DeFi applications, decentralized finance applications. And the biggest ones that, um, you know, the most important one, I would say, because they're central in the operation are exchanges and borrowing and lending, right? Because that's really what most of finance is about in some form or another. So maybe we should, can you maybe pick one of the major uh, platforms, as I understand they are in lending and borrowing that are organized as DAOs and say what it is that they actually do? Maybe, Brett, do you want to take that question? Yeah, that's exactly what I was going <laughs> to jump in and say before. So like on Ethereum, um, the two of the biggest lending protocols are Aave and Compound. And in a lot of ways, they work fairly similarly. And so they have a bunch of on-chain contracts that work as escrow contracts. And people can go and um, deposit funds into these contracts as lenders. And then people can come and put up collateral and borrow from them. And the contracts are decentralized and will kind of keep running. And so in some sense, you could imagine naively that you wouldn't need any kind of governance. Once you put these contracts up, they just sort of will their code. They're just going to keep running without any human intervention. But actually, you need lots of decisions to be made. So, for example, things like what type of collateral would be a good collateral, right? So if somebody puts up collateral, should we allow wrapped Bitcoin as collateral to borrow, you know, USDC? And the different new tokens are made at all different times. And so, you know, you can't just have a single contract that knows in advance what are all the good collateral types because you don't want to accept bad collateral. So some somebody has to make decisions on the fly about should we accept this as collateral? So that's like one type of thing. Another question is about interest rates. So they can have some algorithmically determined interest rates. And the way it works on Aave is the interest rate kind of depends on how much of the token has been borrowed from the platform, what they call the utilization rate. So if it has a billion dollars that it could lend out and 70% of that has been lent out, as the amount that's lent out goes up, the interest rate goes up, but how much it goes up is determined by a governance parameter. So there's this slope of this interest rate curve is determined by a governance vote. Um, then there are sort of even bigger picture things of like, should we take Aave and deploy it on another chain? Right. So initially it was deployed on Ethereum. Should we take this code and deploy it on Arbitrum or on Optimism or some other layer two? Um, this is something that the code can't do by itself. Somebody has to actually vote to do it and, and go do it. So these are the kind of governance decisions, even though the contracts are kind of running by themselves and can make some decisions themselves. There's a lot of need for human intervention. And to keep things decentralized, we keep this as sort of a, as a DAO where token holders vote. So let's go with the, the first part then. So the ones where these decisions are really run by the contract. So that means by a piece of code running on the blockchain. Um, so as you described, there is the interest rate has, for instance, be determined. And that, um, you know, there's, a, there's probably a mechanism. I presume this is a mechanism which also runs maybe not continuously, but at least there's a, there's certain uh, cadence in which these decisions are being taken. Now, can you run us through how how actually... Let's say in the example of Aave, how would you uh, describe the different rates? So I presume there is a cutoff rate for the utilization. So utilization being the fraction of the amount that is in a particular a pool has been lent out. And then also the slope or the, the probably you would do this at with what is the rate at the, at the threshold point. So how do you determine these votes? When, how is this done? So Aave, so yeah, for Aave setting interest rate, there are two parameters that are chosen by governance, which is the, the interest rate at the target utilization and then the kind of interest rate curve above it. So there's one slope going up to the target utilization and then there's a steeper slope um, uh, once you get above that. So it'll be like 
you're going towards 4% interest until you have lent out 80% of your reserves. And then the interest rate curves jumps to like 60% and it, it heads towards 60% as you lend out everything. Um, and so there's a big distinction in interest rates once you get above this target utilization rate. Um, and so these two parameters are things that are chosen by governance. And the way Ave governance works is that um, someone has to propose, they make a binary proposal. They say, I think the, the two interest rates should be you know, 5% and 65%. And then the Ave token holders get to vote yes, no. And this is taken as a token weighted majority average vote. And if that um, if the proposal is accepted, then those new interest rates get incorporated. So to clarify there, if I can jump in here, you're saying the current process is just an even weighting over Aave tokens amongst the people who vote. Is that correct? Yeah. So it's, you just need a majority of, it's a token weighted vote and you need a majority of the people who vote to, um, to have voted yes. By the out of curiosity, is there, is there a required quorum or anything like that, or it's just literally whoever? No, there's actually a minimum um, that because, right, as you expect, there's sort of low voter turnout. You don't need 51% of all of the tokens in existence to vote yes. You need 51% of the people who voted, plus at least you know 10% of the token holders have to have voted. So there is a minimum cutoff. I see. So, and then if there's no, uh, no vote happening, the quorum is not reached, and you stick with the status quo, is that correct? Yes. So maybe we can also, so so we had one example would be the borrowing lending. And so it seems that there is a, and in borrowing lending, you can imagine that you actually need to change um, interest rates regularly because of market changes, right? Um, and I'm just going to say this as an economist, I find it very interesting that uh, we actually don't have a market mechanism there, right? So we have the voting mechanism where where basically, if you want, the, the DAO sets a particular rate. And then we have the uh, you know the provision of of collateral and the borrowing lending against the particular decision that is being taken. It's kind of interesting for me because you would can imagine you can also have a market mechanism that organizes the whole thing. And with that, I would actually like to jump to maybe another application for DAO voting, which are decentralized exchanges. So um, you know, AMMs also have potentially um, a, a way of how they can make votes. Um, can you, is there, do you have an example for that maybe? Yeah. So there are a lot of, there's a lot of overlap um, in these AMMs. So there's still questions about, should we deploy Uniswap on this new L2? Every time a new L2 comes out, that's an EVM chain. You have the option, should we deploy our contracts on this new L2 or not? Um, so that, that that's a common vote that you see coming up. Um other questions revolve around treasury management. So this is also something that kind of happens off chain, but a lot of times these protocols collect fees either from their initial token sales or from streaming fees coming in. And now you want to ask, um, should we use these tokens to fund people to build new front ends or wallets that interact with our protocol? Or should we fund people who are going to develop new smart contracts? So it's sort of like, how do you invest the, the platform's resources in sort of general growth. So these are things that affect basically all the DeFi platforms that use DAOs. I see. Uh, so is there actually an example of an AMM, for instance, where the fee is actually being voted on? Yeah. So in Uniswap version two, there was a fixed fee on every trade of um, 0.3%. But in Uniswap version three, there are different fee tiers. And initially there were three fee tiers, but new fee tiers could be added by governance. And so on every Uniswap trade on a specific pool, there's some percentage fee and governance could make up new fee tiers. Um, and Uniswap governance works similarly to Aave and compound governance where someone has to propose a yes, no vote, and then you vote and it's a token weighted vote. And if 51% of the voters vote for this, there's the, um, you know, the new fee tier can be added. And again, there's some minimum quorum level that this some fraction of the token holders has to vote for it to account okay so so now th this is nice so now we have two examples of uh mechanisms or or uh, decision problems which require the involvement of the DAO holders so maybe uh, uh, can, I, can i just ask a, a quick question here though um so in more broadly is there any restriction before the initial deployment as to what you could make 
sort of subject to the governance process? Yeah, that's absolutely right. So you could, right, people talk about smart contracts being immutable. So I can make a smart contract that just goes up and nobody can change it, right? Um, Or I can make a smart contract which has some voting module as part of it, and the voting is allowed to change certain parameters but not other parameters. So this tends to be pretty much baked into the system um, at the beginning of like what parameters voting is allowed to change. Now, um, voting could always do off-chain stuff. You could vote to hire some developers to write you a new contract. Um, but uh, within the contract, it has to be specified in advance what are the things that voters can vote on. So we, we see here, this is already quite a complex problem, right? So we have two examples um, of, of protocols that have some need or, or, or potential for on-chain voting for particular features of an existing protocol. Then we have the decision of what you actually want to put in. So before the deployment of the contract, you have to think about what is it actually that you want to make subject to voting. And then we have decisions about what you can do off-chain. Now, I think for this particular podcast in our audience, the most interesting part is really the one which happens for the contract itself. So everything that goes from that happens on-chain that determines parameters of a contract to what it is that you actually should be deploying in the first place. Um, This is just my take on this. Now, Jerry, um, maybe you can run us through what kind of complications arise and what kind of questions arise when we when we are asking, when we're looking into the specifics of how we uh, do the voting, but also the parameters that are in there. What what problems, economic problems arise? Yeah, it, a lot actually, which was surprising when we first started working on this topic with Brett uh, many many years ago. I think my first question was, voting is solved. My first comment was along those lines. So, you know, what could there possibly be to uh, understand? But um, what's interesting is that these, uh, you know, a lot of blockchains, even from the from the very beginning, when when people started talking about governance, um, there was a system that was adopted, which is the token weighted voting system uh, from the get go, uh, which seems like a very reasonable system where people with more tokens, they have know, a higher, uh, higher voting power than, than people with less tokens. And, you know, um, it's similar to shareholder voting, shareholder voting in that sense. It doesn't seem unreasonable. Um, and, you know, one of the questions that we wanted to ask was, well, you know, is, is that really the, the optimal mechanism? How does it perform? And the whole uh, basis of our inquiry started from a very simple observation which was the fact that um, it's, it's very possible that people that have a lot of tokens and have a lot of power in the voting might not have the best information um, at the same time. Right? And so that was, that was the spark that really launched this whole investigation. What happens if someone has a lot of tokens but is, is misinformed? Then what? Right? And so uh, intuitively, you can kind of extrapolate and say, well, that might actually be bad for the system. And so we, we dived into a whole investigation of, you know, does token-weighted voting work? Uh, should everyone instead just have one vote? And so there was all sorts of questions that came from that. But, you know, I'll stop here. That's the reaction. Okay, well, uh, so <clears throat> so the, the information part is the first. Can I, um, just out of curiosity, um, and I think it's probably also worth pointing out, is that when we think of shareholder voting, uh, it's actually pretty single-dimensional, right? Because a shareholder has, uh, has a particular interest, which is on the profits or earnings of the firm, and they want to have those maximized. Um, but a DAO is much more complex, right? Because VAO is a platform. On a platform, you actually have two parties that interact. Um, it's quite possible that somebody who is, for instance, if you take an AMM, is a regular liquidity taker. So somebody who goes to the contract, wants to trade with the contract, um, has an interest in low fee, uh, fees, whereas another DAO token holder could be somebody who is a liquidity provider and wants to have as much you know income from from those, and their decisions could be conflicting or they could actually be aligned. It depends on actually how how the system is set up. But it's worth pointing out that a DAO is much more than than a firm in that sense, right? Um, and so this makes that, in my opinion, what you described probably much more important and interesting, which is the question of information. So, I mean, the one thing that we're concerned about in finance is asymmetric information or somebody knowing more than another, and just simply the ability of a market to aggregate information. 
Um, so, so that seems to be that the, this is the problem that you that you try to zoom in first. Um, now, can you enlighten us a little bit of how does actually voting contribute to information revelation? So, how does information actually come about and is is used in the or the, the most amount of information is actually revealed? How, how's that done? Sure. So. Um, I think sort of as a, as a good running example, we can think about this voting for an interest rate on a lending platform. So this can be like a, a good thing to have in mind is you want to vote on what should the interest rate parameter be. And if you imagine that, you know, Aave token holders are mostly incentivized to try to make choose the interest rate that's the best for the platform, that's going to sort of encourage the most activity and generate the most fees for the platform, you now have to choose how to aggregate things. Um, in our first paper, we looked at a voting mechanism that um, you would call now maybe direct voting, or sometimes it's called instant voting. And it's not the mechanism that's used by Aave, but it is used by one inch. And this is a mechanism where if you're trying to set a parameter, which is like a real value, say a number between zero and one of what the interest rate should be, that everybody votes, and then the platform is going to take some weighted average of everybody's votes. And probably it will be a token weighted average. So the people who have more tokens get more say in setting the parameter, but everybody gets a little bit of a say in setting this parameter. Okay. So, and then with that voting, um, so, so are you, are you saying that the particular voting mechanism that is used there, which is one, essentially one token, one vote, is that optimal or is there a better way? In fact, actually, let's start with the question of what is actually the problem that people try to solve? <laughs> I, I'm not sure about this, but I, I don't know if there was a lot of thought that was put in um, or enough thought that was put in in terms of information aggregation in these early blockchain systems. It's not entirely clear to me um, that the, there were studies done on, you know, what's the optimal voting mechanism. I think, you know, shareholder voting to some extent works this way, um, one share, one vote. And so... It's almost a natural extension to the blockchain space. Well, you know, we have one token, one vote. Um, but you know, one of the one of the things in the blockchain space is that you have situations where you know, voter incentives might, might actually be aligned, and this can happen quite often. But people just don't agree on what the best, you know, the best value is for a certain parameter, uh, etc. And uh, and so you know, the, the inquiry was really about well. Um, is there is there a way to wait? You know how good is this? But then to answer that, we have to define a benchmark. So what are we comparing it to? Um, and you know you could you could cheat a little bit and say well there's there's this optimal benchmark which is you know imagine there's some central entity which again is you know, the centralized system that can somehow take everyone's true information and aggregate everything and then make a decision on behalf of everyone on the platform. Right, so imagine if every single user on the platform were to reveal their information to a central entity truthfully, that the central entity would have a broad view of what everyone thinks and will actually be able to make a decision. That's what we call uh, a first best optimality in this paper, or more generally, the, the best possible outcome um, that you could achieve. But it's worth pointing out that even centralized systems may not work this way because you know, you're assuming that people truthfully report their information. And so it's not clear. So it's, it's, a, it's really the absolute best you could ever, ever do. Um, and of course, we find in this paper that a lot of times you, you don't get there. Actually, sometimes you do. We could talk about, you know, situations where you do and you don't, um, but you don't, you don't get there. And then the second benchmark is, well, is there just another simple practical system that could be implemented instead of token-weighted voting that could beat token-weighted voting? And the one we examined in this paper, this you know, mind you, this was a few years ago, was simply uh, one person, one vote instead of one token, one. And we call that a one over n, yeah, one over n voting mechanism. So there's not multiple things that came up here right away, right? So, um, so the first thing, just as a comment, so it seems like the, what you're suggesting is essentially Vitalik's uh, vision of you know, you have a proof of personhood, and then a single person can actually make a vote. Uh, it's an interesting, is interesting concept as as it is. Um, what I would like to go and maybe can you explain some of the reasons as to why we would not see the optimal outcome uh, reveal itself? Um, what, what are the obstacles there? What's what's going wrong that that doesn't work? Yeah, I, so I'll just uh, go back. Maybe Brett has 
some thoughts on this as well, but I'll just go back to the original statement, which was the fact that there can be a misalignment between people with tokens and people. Um, and the way the system is set up, it's not directly meant to deal with that misalignment. Um, you know, to deal with it, you have to go outside of that system. You have to find ways, for instance, selling your votes to someone else, proxying your votes. There, you have to find other ways to do that. The mechanism itself doesn't take care of that. Um, and so that's how, you know, that's, that's a, for us, when we were looking at this problem, it was a clear point of failure. Um, and so the first question was, well, what are the assumptions you need to actually get this system to work, right? So what, how would users have to behave for this thing to work in the sense of to recover the optimal outcome, which is the best possible outcome, the first best outcome? And, you know, one of the first results in that paper where we were looking at people acting strategically, meaning, um, you know, that they're voting, they get some information about, let's say, the interest rate, but they don't just vote, you know, let's say, I believe it's 5%. They're not going to vote 5%. Why? Because they're going to try to figure out what other people are going to vote. And so we call these strategic votes. Let me give you a really simple example just to, to make things, make sure things are clear. Let's say I believe that the right interest rate is 5%. But I know that someone else who hasn't done as much work as me thinks it's it's 15% or you know, let's say 10%. But I know that it should be 5 So I'm not going to vote 5 Right. I'm going to vote. Maybe I'm going to vote less to try and bring down the average because I know that someone else will vote 15. So I need to vote maybe zero. Uh, and it works the other way around as well. And so that's what we call that's what we mean by strategic behavior. So it's, it's a very um, it's very common in the academic literature to treat people this way. Um, it's much more debatable whether people actually behave this way in practice. But nonetheless, that was the starting point of the analysis was what if, um, you know, all of these players that are voting, let's say, on an interest rate, what if they are aware that there are other people voting and they vote strategically? Meaning they, they have some idea of what they think, but they also see, you know, there's a broader sea of people there. They each have their own ideas. Now, you can't directly observe their information, but you can kind of understand, you know, there's people that are good, there's people that are bad, there's people that are informed and completely uninformed. And so you have that as your information. Um, and it turns out that if everyone is strategic and they have this base layer of, of knowledge, um, and you also need to, to know people's token holdings, you can actually recover the optimal outcome um, if people vote strategically. And so there's an equation in the paper that, that basically describes exactly, you know, once you observe your information, this is how much weight you should put, or this is how you should send your vote to the, uh, to the smart contract that aggregates the vote. Um, and, uh, and so there's a closed form formula for that, for how you would go about doing it. Uh, and what's interesting about the solution is that one of the things you need to do is kind of undo the weighting mechanism. Right? The fact that the aggregation mechanism is via token weighted voting, one of the things you need to do is undo that part. <laughs> Just kind of take the tokens out of the picture because it's really about um, information that people have. Um, and so that, that was kind of one of the main results. But, you know, of course, it all right. So, so the, really, the key part here is is so, so this. So, the interesting part I see here is so really, you're interested. Information doesn't depend on the token holdings, right? So that, that's you, you can assume it doesn't as a first step, and then you can you know the second part of the paper goes into more details about. That. But you're right. As a first step, you can just make the assumption tokens are exogenous to the system. You know, token holdings are just randomly distributed. What happens? Um, I mean, yeah, there are a couple of things I wanted to add. So, one is I just want to highlight what Jerry said that. It's actually really interesting that the first thing people do is undo the contract has some weighting mechanism in it that says we're going to weight everybody, we're going to take the weighted average. And if voters are smart and they act in their own best interest, the first thing they do is they change their votes to undo that mechanism, um, which is kind of a funny. Um, and then they then try to re-implement a mechanism which... Um, uh, weights their votes according to their information so um so it seems almost as if the you are actually able so one of the things that we learn from markets is markets are can be quite good at uh, at revealing information provided there is you know the right incentives for people to act in their own interest so is is that maybe something that 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 works in your favor there there's a you, you in some form establish markets yeah it does work in your favor it doesn't get all the way there because that you're very constrained in how you can unwind this mechanism because you know the smart contract is only going to take a linear, you know, a weighted average. 
And so you can't force the contract. You can change sort of the weights in the contract a little bit by, by changing your own vote, but you can't get it to do sort of arbitrarily different things. So you can't get all the way to the, to the sort of best outcome. So in other words, what you're really finding is, okay, so actually, even though you do something silly, which is the the, the uh, one token, one vote voting, in this particular case, if you had one person, one vote voting, this would actually be better because of the information effect. Um, so in terms of revealing the right information to take the best possible decision, the latter would actually be better, right, as I understand it. Um, but you can say that, you know, if everything works out well, then, you know, people have the right incentives, you know, they pay probably, you know, have fa face some costs of getting it wrong and the like, then you can actually recover that result if you want. Um, but is there, are there, are there also uh, situations where that may not work? Um, I mean, I'm not sure if this is part of your particular paper, but is there also something where that could fail? Well, I would say that it does kind of fail and that you can't, you still can't get to sort of this best outcome. Um, You can, you can get closer to it when the voters act really strategically. If the voters just vote, you know, if I think the interest rate should be 5% and I just vote that, we don't do very well. If I take into account that other people are going to vote wrong, we can get a little better, but we still can't get all the way there because we can't fully unwind the, the one token, one vote mechanism. I, I mean, the only situation where you can fully unwind it is if every single person is strategic and is voting strategically and there are no issues about How much effort do I put into acquire information? It's really a perfect world where there's no cost to voting. Uh, everyone's there's not even a single person voting truthfully in the sense that they just submit their their information truthfully. That actually undermines the whole the whole system, which, is, which was a, kind of an interesting result as well. Um, but uh, but yes, in all other cases, you you can't you can't recover fully um, the efficiencies that you would under a central planner with the ability to aggregate all that. Right. So, so basically, what you're saying is, in principle, the bar is actually quite high um, that you get that you have given the given the particulars of the mechanisms that are there. Because I mean, it seems a little counterfactual, as you say, right? Because if what you were what you were doing would actually be entirely correct and not not correct but true, right? Then you would have uh, 100% quorum each time, right? Because everybody would actually there's no cost of voting, so everybody would do the voting, and and we know that that's not the case. So if I can ask then, um, given the difficulty of maybe uh, implementing uh, this uh, and given the sort of fundamental nature of the point I think you're making, which is this misalignment between information and token ownership, is there a role for like information intermediaries in these markets or, you know, what, what practical guidance would you give given your sort of fundamental uh, finding about this uh, misalignment again between token ownership and um, information? Um, yeah, that's, that's a good, um, that's a good question. I think it, what this result points to is, well, first of all, things that seem very intuitive don't necessarily work very well. And you might want to go outside of the system and do things to adjust for the shortcomings of the system. And in this particular case, um, there are things like proxying your votes. If you know that someone, you know, is a, let's say you're voting on an interest rate and someone has expertise in that area, you might want to give your vote to that person. And so going around the system and enabling this type of information transfer seems to be quite important. And it's not unusual. There's, there's a lot of situations where, um, you know, in real markets, you're using, you're using a model, you're using an algorithm, and, and people understand that the algorithm isn't perfect, and they do things around that algorithm to try and adjust. And just as an analogy, one thing that comes to mind, people are familiar with financial derivatives. This happens all the time in the derivatives market. For instance, just options um, on stocks are based on the Black-Scholes model, which makes assumptions about the distribution of the returns of the stocks, and people understand that those assumptions are, are wrong. And they go around that by, for instance, um, you know, assigning different volatilities to different strike prices of the same stock. Right? So you could say, you know, Apple in the next month is going to be have a variance of 20%. Someone else might say it has a variance of 30%. And both are consistent in that model because people are, are making adjustments to, to, to address the shortcomings of the algorithm itself. And so I think this is one direction that this analysis shows that actually proxies are important. Um, and any type of mechanism you can have or intermediary you can have to enable uh, better information sharing and kind of ignore the, the token component of it um, would actually be better than the status quo at the moment. Well, can I just add that? 
So, you know, most DeFi protocols do allow some kind of proxying or delegation of votes. Um, and so that's generally good. The one downside with that is that in terms of just straight information aggregation, if there's only a few people with a lot of information, um, when if too many people delegate to them, you lose some of these benefits you would get from like a law of large numbers type of thing. And it's actually kind of interesting, even when people are strategic, um, once you delegate too much to one person, you imagine one person, you know, has 90% accuracy and you have a thousand people who have, you know, 51% accuracy. The cent, like the, the central limit theorem is going to basically say you're probably actually better just to take the average of all these thousand people. But all these thousand people see this one person who's really good and they're all going to delegate to them. And um, you, you can end up with these problems of centralization, which are not just that centralization is bad, but actually you lose some of this aggregation effect. So I think that actually what the nature of the information is, is actually quite important, right? Because, for example, if it's just something that given sufficient analysis, uh, it, it's sort of revealed to everybody. Um, and this relates a bit, I think, to like Jerry, you referencing the Black-Scholes model, right? Like that's, we know it's wrong, but it's essentially a framework that allows us to start thinking uh, a little bit more deeply about the problem. And we kind of make these ad hoc adjustments. Um, but so related to that, then, is there some potential value for platforms like Aave or Compound or Uniswap to provide sort of essentially analytics uh, to, to, to reduce the cost of information acquisition for the various um, token holders. Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, a lot of these platforms provide at least some kind of analytics that they um, have, you know, more and more complex dashboards that show sort of everything that's going on. And then a lot of them um, contract uh, with outside analytics providers who provide guidance. And these end up being a lot of the biggest delegates. So, um, you can hire somebody to do simulations, basically, and then voters can delegate to that person. So this actually, we see this happening. In, my, in some sense, if I may say so, we actually, the, the fascinating part that I'm just observing there is we're moving from, you know, a, a full democracy, everybody has to do their own research type of world to one where we actually, in some form, centralize information acquisition and information provision in some way, it's simply because it is more efficient. Is that probably fair to say? I mean, this is something probably which your paper is not really covering, but it seems like that's essentially where we're what we're getting at here. Yeah, I think we do see that, and it's very interesting to see those sort of delegations either they're to individuals whose primary job is basically like risk analyst, or to companies who who are doing this professionally, or we see a lot of delegation to university blockchain clubs where. You know, a lot of the top universities have a blockchain club that acts as a, a big delegate on um, a lot of these DeFi platforms. And the hope would be that they are sort of unbiased and willing to do some research about. Uh, so I'm just going to say this for if there's any management students listening here. So it seems like intermediaries and, and managers still have a role to play in the world. which is probably important. Unfortunately, yeah. <laughs> hey, aren't you employed at a business school? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I'm just the vision, you know, the vision of I mean, I don't claim to speak for the, for the decentralized community, you know, systems community, but the vision is that you could eventually do away with any any type of intermediaries. But if you're going to get there, um, a lot of the research that's been done the last few years is increasingly showing that it's pretty hard to get there. There's a lot of obstacles all over. Yeah, I mean, you know, we, we know also from just from from the economics literature, um, voting is costly and, and that alone creates problems and information acquisition is costly. So if you if there could be more efficient ways to to organize this right, as a market. Um, now, maybe we should move on to discuss your second paper. Um, so what what's that about? What kind of problem are you studying there and how does it relate to the one that we've discussed so far? Th that was a big narrative in the early days of these thousand different types of platforms was token weighted voting is so good because big token holders will be incentivized to go and figure out what the right decision is. Right. Um, and so we tried to model that as well. So since we talk about intermediaries and information intermediaries, one of the things that um, 
that could be relevant here is that there may be also an incentive for token holders to to, to acquire information. So how does that relate to this problem? Oh, um, yeah, so this was um, yeah, an, a big narrative around the original um, sort of decentralized information aggregation in DAOs that the more tokens you have, you should be incentivized to do some work to figure out the, the right decision for some kind of vote. And so we tried to model that as well. Um, and so we imagined a situation where you could exert some effort that had some cost to you to improve your information. And so every user could choose whether or not to essentially do some research that would make their vote more informed and make it better. And then we'd try to see, could with this possibility, would this be enough to get you back to this sort of best possible equilibrium that you would have with a, a central planner? And what we found is that it, it does help a little bit, but it can't get you all the way there because, again, there are these, um, there's sort of a mismatch about how much effort you want to put in. So what is the mismatch? Where, where does that come from? What, is, what, what prevents you there? Um, that, that your incentive is not exactly, it's aligned with a platform incentive because you have some tokens and the, the platform's revenues, we imagine, are essentially redistributed to token holders um, and your good decisions you know, increase platform revenues. But um, you bear the direct cost of doing this information acquisition. And so there's essentially like a free rider problem that you don't want to put in quite as much work as the platform would like you to. Right. Uh, so, I mean, in many ways, if I may summarize, this is almost seems like the same problem why, why janitors don't get paid in stock options, right? Because, yeah, sure, by, by doing their job well, they, they increase the value of the firm, but not sufficiently relative to the cost that they have of doing their job well, right? So the, the benefit is just not not large enough from their particular activity to, to provide the right incentives. And I think this is really an important message, an important insight that is often overlooked. It's just because there's an incentive. That incentive is often not large enough relative to people's costs. I think this is, I think there's a general insight here for the, for often for blockchain communities and DAO, DAO um, designers, if you want, that this is just not enough. Yeah, I, I, just to add to, to that into what Brett said. So what we found with this, this you know, we, we call it endogenous information acquisition model is that um, you actually do get some, you know, some of the benefits that people were talking about on blogs and various, uh, you know, forums and whatnot. Uh, things like people who actually have more tokens will exert more effort than others um, to, to acquire better information, which you could argue, you know, that might be um, a desirable outcome in some sense. But what was interesting um, was that when we looked at why this was happening, it, it actually turned out it wasn't because of the token-weighted uh, mechanism itself. Um, even if you take that away, and so for instance, you, you ignore people's token holdings and you just say, you know, everyone gets a vote, doesn't matter how many tokens you have, you still get those beneficial effects because um, what you, the only thing you really need is the fact that uh, people with more tokens benefit more when the value of tokens goes up, and that's by definition the case. Um, and so that's the only uh, mechanism you need to ensure that some of these desirable properties that were listed in, in marketing materials and blogs. Um, and uh, the other thing that came out um, of this analysis was, okay, so you can't get all the way there, um, but uh, there was a question of whether, you know, there are other mechanisms like this one over N, you know, one person, one vote, one token vote can do better. Um, and the answer is not straightforward, but, you know, it, we did a lot of numerical simulations to try and answer that. And um, in general, what we found, but I wouldn't necessarily, you know, quote this as, as valid for every situation, but in general, what we found was that uh, even in this complicated model where people are, you know, making decisions about acquiring, improving their information, everything, you know, there's all the bells and whistles, we find that um, one over n usually outperforms, um, at least more than 50% of the time. Um, and, and it gets much worse as the dispersion in people's token holdings increases. Um, uh, and so just, you know, intuitively to think about that, you know, let's say there's, there's massive differences between various people's token holdings. You know, you can define dispersion in many different ways. But in generally speaking, it's an asymmetry between you know, people with not a lot of holdings, people with a lot of holdings. So as this measure of dispersion starts going up, what you end up getting is the fact that token-weighted voting gets worse. 
Um, and um, and you don't you don't want to do that. You, you either want to try and limit token dispersion. So you don't want you know too too many asymmetries between the various holdings of the people who are voting. Um, uh, or if you can't do that, then you know the analysis suggests well actually you should, you'd be better off just a simpler mechanism which is just to ignore people's token holdings and just give them you know one account one vote. That's actually quite fascinating. So the subtleties of of the holdings and the incentives that they create is, uh, I think, this is often it seems to be something that people probably overlook, and that sometimes the beliefs of it is just great if everything is fully decentralized that may not actually work in the best interest of everybody, right? So that's, um, I mean, when we talk about fully decentralized, you can define it's it's actually not that's probably not a well defined uh, term itself, right? So you know, simply you know, it's the power can still be decentralized when there's a few people who have more power than others. But, um, you know, the fact that that individual holders, a few individual holders that have a high stake, if you want, in in what's what's going on, could be beneficial for everybody. Um, now, speaking of this and, and speaking of the of the particular voting aggregation mechanism that you had. So you refer to it. We have we have talked a lot about the uh, one share or one token, one vote. Um, arrangement, but there are some other ideas out there that 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 people have thought about and people have used. Um, and I think you've done some work on that too. Do you maybe want to talk about that a little? Yeah, bit? sure. So, um, what a voting mechanism that people have talked about a lot in the blockchain space is this thing called quadratic voting that was proposed actually outside of the blockchain space originally by Lally and Weil. And the idea of quadratic voting was in the context of voting or in funding something, you can imagine instead of paying linearly for your vote weight or for um, the you know the outcome that you want, what if you have to pay for the square? Um, and so this is where this quadratic comes in. And so for for token weighted voting, you can imagine this that if I want to participate in a token weighted um, voting system where it's um, one token, one vote, I potentially lock my tokens up in some voting contract. And so there's some opportunity cost of staking in this voting system. And that's proportional to the number of tokens I have, which is now proportional to my voting power. So you can think of this as like costing sort of my votes are costing me linearly and how much effort I or how much influence I want to exert. But you could ask this question, what if if I staked um, v tokens, I didn't get V votes, I got square root of V votes. Then this would basically, another way to say that is the cost of voting at some weight is the square. This is where this quadratic comes in. And the sort of one argument for this is that this can sort of flatten down these big disparities in token holdings. Now, if I want to if I have 90% of the tokens, I don't have 90% of the vote anymore. I have much less, right? And so it really kind of pushes down on the, the big whales. Um, and so the early votes or the early works on this quadratic voting showed that in some settings where people have kind of uh, perfect information about their own preferences, that quadratic voting can be optimal. And so we wanted to ask a similar question to what we asked before about as an information aggregation mechanism. So if you have some DAO platform and you're imagining again that you're voting on some parameters and as a simplification, we imagine that most of the token holders are aligned on what they want. They all want to choose the parameter that will result in the highest revenue for the platform. Um, and we want to figure out a mechanism that will aggregate information well. Will this quadratic voting um, aggregate information sort of better than either linear voting, so one token, one vote, or one person, one vote. Yeah, so if I may, may jump in, so if, as I remember the early results, I think there was a paper in the AER um, a few years ago that that uh, studied that particular problem. So the, the kind of question that people had at the time was, is this a good way how you can aggregate uh, or bring out the decision that actually everybody prefers, right? So some people may have stronger preferences um, for a particular outcome, and that is a way how you can express, uh, you know, what what it is that you're really after. Um, 
And so, so what you're actually asking of any related but interesting question, which is, so people have information, um, and so is quadratic voting actually a, a better mechanism, maybe than one one token, one vote, to bring out the truth, right? Because that's what you're after, in particular in the light of incentive problems and so on. So, is it? What's the outcome? So, so yeah, so, um, so. Sometimes, so the answer is sort of sometimes. And the problem with quadratic voting, you don't you don't get the um, you don't get a clean result like you got in the previous works, where in the previous works we we're set, you, as you just described, um, where people have different uh, sort of strength of their preferences. Quadratic voting is a way to for them to uh, sort of exert the strength of their preference in a nice way. If we imagine that people have again, sort of this overall preference to increase revenue for the platform, but they have different sort of strengths of information. Now, the quadratic voting, again, has the same problem that we saw um, in the first paper, which is that your your votes maybe don't align with um, your information. And so you really want a system where the people with the most information have the most voting power. But now under quadratic voting, Actually, it costs, uh, if you have a lot of information, it costs you way, way more to exert any influence on the vote. And so quadratic voting does all right when the information is sort of well distributed because quadratic voting is kind of forcing the vote weights to be more distributed. It's saying we're not going to, it's going to be too costly for a whale to exert a lot of influence. But actually, if somebody has a lot of information, you kind of want them to exert more influence. Um, and quadratic voting sort of kills that. So it almost seems like instead of having a proxy vote or giving your votes to the whale, you actually have to do it the other way around. The the, the whale would have to give you their vote so that you can get this out. And <laughs> yeah, but but this tends to be disallowed in quadratic voting because quadratic voting essentially always assumes there's some identity mechanism because even in the case, well, it, not even in, in the case where people have really distinct preferences, I can always get around quadratic voting by kind of splitting my votes. So instead of buying ten votes at a cost of a hundred, right, I can buy, I can split myself into ten people and make ten accounts and buy ten votes that we buy one vote in each account and they get vote weight ten. And so to avoid this kind of end running quadratic voting. Basically, every quadratic voting system assumes there's some sort of identity management. And if you sort of allowed people to split their identity, then you kind of completely undermine quadratic voting because everybody can just vote one now and one squared is one. And so now you've recovered token weighted voting. So but if I look at this, um, so if I take your first paper and I look at this paper, it seems that the number of cases when quadratic voting, even though we tout it as something which is superior and clever and new, is actually superior in terms of information aggregation. That seems very narrow, right? It almost seems like a, a harmful approach. So I think that's for, for the design of voting seems really quite important to understand this, right? Well, well, I, I would say it's just caveat, not always, because there, there are situations where it works. Sure, but if you do an exante, so this, I mean, it's important, Jerry, to say this, right? But if you have to design a system exante, you don't know what the possible outcomes are ex ante, right? You know, in terms of distribution of information and the like. So if you had to make that choice, if you had to make a choice ex ante, would you go with, uh, I'm going to push you and I'll put you on the spot. Would you actually <laughs> go with one one token, one vote, one personal vote or a quadratic? Yeah, I mean, that's, I, I'll preface my answer by saying I don't know, but I'll give you an answer anyway. Um just to make, before I answer, just to make a quick connection to the to the previous paper. The previous paper, so one of the takeaways is dispersion in token holdings is bad when you have this token-weighted aggregation mechanism, and you'd want to dampen that dispersion, right? Why? Because you might, you know, reduce the, reduce the, mis, the inherent mismatch that probably exists between people with tokens and people with information. So dampening dispersion in general as a theme when it comes to these voting mechanisms um, might be might be the way to go, and you can think of it. You can think of quadratic voting in that lens as a mechanism uh, that dampens dispersion, uh, in the sense that you know people with more voting power under the previous mechanism now you, you'll take the square root of that, so their voting power is reduced. But then the question is, why would a square root function 
be the optimal function or the optimal way to dampen dispersion. And and what we find in this paper that it isn't. There, you know, it, it's not necessarily the optimal way. There might be other dampening functions that you could use that might not be the exactly the square root. Might be something else. Um, and so, you know, I'm not going to discount um, the concept behind quadratic voting. What's the concept behind it? It's that, you know, it shouldn't be one token, one vote. There needs some adjustment. There needs to be some adjustment. Now, that adjustment might not be, it might not optimally be the square root when you're coming at this purely from um, an information aggregation perspective, which is what we do compared to all the other papers. And it might be something else. Um, and so I'll, I'll give it credit there. But, um, you know, a lot of the analysis from the previous paper, you know, tends to hint in the direction of one over n voting seems to work a little bit better if, if those are your two, your two options. But I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't bet money on that. There's still a lot of work. Well, that, wait, so then it's, it's, if, if I can just ask here, it, it sounds like uh, the way information is formed ends up being fundamental, right? So if you kind of assume that ex ante, everybody is equally likely to have um, the same distribution of information or something like that, then then it's then then I can kind of see this point that you're saying like we want to essentially dampen what the actual ex post token distributions are and kind of get back to that initially. Um, is that is that channel? behind a little bit of what you're describing or am I sort of missing a little bit here? Yeah, I think that's, I think that that's partially true. Um, it is a little bit more. So in the paper, in the first paper, it turns out it is a little bit more complex than, you know, uh, does it only work when everyone has is homo homogeneous, right? I think is what you're saying in terms of their type of information. Yes. Yeah. The ex ante, um, uh, that they have, um, and uh, and yeah, I mean, there's there's some of that, um, and a lot of the interesting properties are coming out from the fact that people aren't, right? And, and so there's a lot of in practice, people just aren't. Um, and so there's a lot of weird things that can happen, including things that are counterintuitive, like uh, you know, even if you just take two two different people, and you know, one's better than the other, should you give them, you know, all the power? <laughs> the answer is no. Um, as long as both people have a little bit of independent information, you are better off by using both, even when one's better than the other. And in fact, if you give too much power to the, even if the better is ten, if the person's ten times better than the other, one person's ten times better than the other person, there are situations where if you give that person too much power, you're still worse off. So heterogeneity in the type of information is extremely important. It's weird. It's hard to analyze, and it, it's responsible for a lot of the unexpected outcomes um, that are happening and so when you don't have that things um, you know things uh, things tend to simplify but I just want to add there's an sort of another angle to think about this so we've been focusing on this information aggregation angle but you know a lot of the discussions around these things are you're worried about some kind of maybe hostile take takeover or some kind of malicious attack right and that's where things like potentially token weighted voting or quadratic voting, do sort of naively do better than one person, one vote, right? If you are worried about somebody coming in and buying a lot of tokens, a competing protocol coming in and buying a bunch of tokens and specifically trying to, you know, choose the worst parameters for you to tank your protocol, um, right? One person, one vote potentially does badly there or, um, and, you know, token weighted voting provides some protection there because you have to buy some amount of tokens and then quadratic voting potentially provides even more protection there. Um, and so, so that's kind of a separate motivation. It's you have to think about how much are you trying to protect yourself against this kind of external attack versus how much are you trying to uh, yeah, sort of elicit information from. Yeah. But so I, you, you can, you can, you can separate that. So for instance, when you're designing governance systems for, for Ethereum, for instance, this would be probably your primary concern. The security of the system would be your primary concern. You'd have to go about that a different way. When you're voting on an interest rate, um, you know, for a specific protocol, you, you might care more about the information aggregation aspect. And so I think it's, um, you know, it's hard to talk in generalities with these systems and DAOs in general, because different DAOs have different objectives and you might want to focus on, on, on different aspects. 
so one of the things that I find really fascinating about this space is that it is also a giant, uh, you know, playground or experiment, if you want, of of trying out different tools and mechanisms in order to to simply uh, aggregate opinions about a particular policy that has economic implications. And we do have a a very large area of finance where this is actually already used, which is you know you have shareholder votings. And um, and I think many of the problems that you describe here uh, would translate potentially also into that space. So, for instance, you have the question of takeovers. You have, um, you know, I think a much bigger concern these days is that of common ownership, where common ownership can lead to collusion, where firms extract policies which are uh, anti-competitive simply because that allows them to extract more rents from from the market and so there's there's a lot of these questions out there and i think in some ways what you're describing we can use these insights possibly to say more about that yeah i mean there's there's clearly some parallels between um shareholder voting and token weighted voting if you mathematically if you abstract away from some of the nuances you you end up with a similar um you know structure basically but you know shareholder voting might have some some differences the aggregation mechanism might be a little bit different you might require a different type of majority um, you know, threshold or other things like that. Um, and, you know, the, the interesting thing I for shareholder voting is that I don't know how much power shareholders actually have to, to, to run the business, right? Um, the, the, the type of stuff they tend to vote on is not necessarily day-to-day operations. And in the blockchain space, it could very well be that. And so there, there's, a, there's a strong difference there. Um, in terms of the amount of information people need to have, the amount of effort they need to spend to get involved, to understand the operations of a platform, the blockchain space is, is not comparable to what's currently going on in, you know, in shareholder voting. Of course, that that could change, but you know, the lessons that we're we're getting from from these, you know, the, I should mention these are some of the early studies that we're aware of, uh, really formally looking at voting systems specifically for, you know decentralized blockchain systems, you know, we're, the insights we're getting is that it's not easy <laughs> in general. Um, if, you, if your objective is this perfect situation where you have a central planner that knows everything, yeah, it's not easy to get if that's your, your goal, which doesn't mean that it's necessarily bad, but you, you can't just, it's just not easy. So I, I don't know uh, if there are lessons to be learned, um, but if there are, you know, um, it would have to be the case that shareholders become more active in the in the, in the day-to-day types of operations of the firm, which is hard to envision when you have an entire corporate entity. And the bigger the firm, the more difficult it is to envision. So in many ways, the blockchain space, think about startups, there are less things to kind of necessarily to know, and, and it might be more adequate for that type. You know, all these are really interesting. I just want to go back to um... One of the things that Jerry said about um, different, uh, there are different types of votes. So we modeled this, you know, information aggregation. And again, I think this running example of like setting an interest rate is a good one. And that's something where an attacker really probably doesn't have that much power to do a lot of damage, to buy a ton of tokens, to set an interest rate to be suboptimal. Um, whereas a vote for something else, like, you know, a lot of these DAOs have uh, an emergency shutdown feature or something where there can be a governance vote to just shut down the whole thing, right? And that might be something where you're much worried about, much more worried about a sort of hostile takeover, right? And so you potentially want a different voting system for these different types of things, maybe for the day-to-day operations versus for, you know, some kind of, you know, something that really could uh, damage the system. One, one thing we hear uh, a lot from the blockchain community is the advantages of decentralization. And, th- and in the context of what you're doing, <clears throat> the, the connection is the fact that you can have more people providing, you know, with independent information, potentially. So you have um, a result on that. Could you talk a little bit about that? About And maybe practically speaking, whether you do see potentially advantages to sort of more participants in these sorts of systems? Across many of the different papers we've written, it turns out that the more people you get to participate, and this would not be a very surprising result, but the better it is for, for the system. And so um, getting people to participate is quite critical. Um, and some blockchains have taken an active view of this. They, they actually incentivize people, even via rewards, 
and get them to participate in governance. Um, and so I think that's, you know, if I, if I were to summarize all of this research into one sentence, it would be, yeah, the more people can get with independent viewpoints, Okay, well then, if I since we're um, there is one more question that I wanted to ask though. Um, so it's, we've been talking concretely about, for example, interest rate setting protocols at say Compound or Aave. So <clears throat> staying on the sort of concrete side of that, um, what guidance would you give for either Compound or Aave in terms of actually how they should think about um, modifying their their governance uh, processes going forward? Well, okay, so I think. Uh, one thing that I've been generally excited about about the blockchain space is that it's kind of a, a open slate about how you design your governance system. You have huge amounts of flexibility when you deploy a DAO about choosing a different kind of voting mechanism. And we've started looking at different ones. So we, the paper we've talked about the most, we focused on this thing of what you call like direct voting, where the, the resulting interest rate would be some weighted average of the votes. That's not the system that Aave or Compound currently use, although it, it is used for other uh, platforms. Um, Compound and Aave both use this sort of yes-no vote, which we could call like uh, initiative voting, amendment voting, where somebody proposes, I think the interest rate should be 4%. You get to vote yes-no on that. And you have some window, you have like a seven-day window to vote yes-no on this proposal. So that's, there's also sort of alternative things. So like uh, MakerDAO, does um, what's called approval voting, where anybody can propose, say, uh, an interest rate, and they're all kind of active at any time. There's no seven-day voting window. And you get to approve of saying, I would approve of a 3% interest or a 4% interest or a 5% interest. And then the, the one with the most approvals is selected. And that already is a very different mechanism than saying you have seven days to vote um, you know, on this yes or no, and then somebody can propose something else. And, you know, th these is still a very small, you know, fraction of the type of voting mechanisms that have been explored in practice. And so I think this is still kind of a wide open space. And so we've been trying to kind of go through and characterize things. And so I, I'm sort of hedging here because I don't think anybody really knows right now what kind of what the, the optimal mechanism should be. But I think there's room for a lot more thought about this. And so I think a lot of people, you know, Compound came up with its governance contracts and a lot of people just forked those contracts um, because it was easy from a coding standpoint. Um, but I think we should be thinking a lot about sort of what different voting mechanisms work better. And um, personally, I think this for some things like these system parameters, these direct voting does seem to be better than the, the binary uh, kind of voting we see, but uh, but that doesn't mean it's sort of the optimal. There's still all kinds of other mechanisms that you could imagine. Well, this was certainly a very fascinating discussion, very much in depth. Um, there is clearly what I learned from this. There are a lot of nuances in the organization of, of voting for DAOs. Um, I kind of feel like now I have to adjust my slides that I have for my students. So yeah. That's uh, but that's great to do because it you know it shows that we learn this this the book is not closed. There is much to figure out, and uh, I'm most grateful to to you, Jerry and Brad, for enlightening us in the audience on this important topic. So thanks very much for listening, and uh, I talk to you soon. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Thank you for listening. As a reminder, you can find additional materials on owlexplains.com and can stay updated by following us on social media. <laughs> That's all for today. <laughs> <laughs>